Hey, this is Keith here. Um, I just finished recording the main body of the episode, and as I did that, it occurred to me I should put a um, serious, no-joking content warning up here at the front. There is an instance of, um, I think, fairly shocking self-harm that occurs towards the end of this episode, and I know that can be difficult for people, especially if you don't know what's coming. So if you are sensitive to things like that, um, you know, I just maybe sit this one out or, you know, listen knowing that uh, something very bad does happen here to a person. Um, Thank you, and I hope you do enjoy the episode. You know, despite that, thanks. Bye. Hi there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters, where we explore the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 13, Unthinkable, 1948. I'm Keith Billy. Quick listener response up front. Um, Two weeks ago, I referred to General Hoyt Vandenberg as the first Air Force Chief of Staff Listener Robert from Baton Rouge reached out to point out that I muffed that one. Um, Carl Spatz was the first Air Force Chief of Staff, actually. But his tenure was pretty short, and he was replaced by Hoyt Vandenberg, um, who, you know, did do what I said he did. Um, It's just he wasn't the first Chief of Staff when he did it. Uh, Not a huge deal for the narrative, but it's important to get this stuff right, um, and so I'm, you know, Glad to uh, get a correction on the record here. So thanks, Robert, and everybody. Please, uh, you know, keep these coming if you if you catch them. Um, I, I really do. It's important to me. I want to get this right. This is the permanent record. Okay, then. Uh, last week we talked about the Battle of San Francisco, which was both the low point so far of the sea creature conflict and probably the worst naval disaster the United States has ever experienced, including both battles of Pearl Harbor. After last week, a good chunk of the U.S. Pacific fleet was destroyed, and the sea monsters had uncontested possession of San Francisco Bay, and President Truman had ordered an evacuation of San Francisco, Oakland, and other communities in the Bay Area. This week... So what did the creatures want with San Francisco Bay, anyway? The people of the United States existed in a profound state of shock in September and October of 1948. In the weeks after the attack, the evacuation zone was expanded to include every community bordering on San Francisco Bay from Vallejo to San Jose. The hordes of evacuated citizens formed enormous refugee camps southeast of the bay haphazardly administrated by the California state government. Conditions in the camps were terrible. People living in the Trumanvilles, as they were called, suffered high rates of sickness, crime, and, of course, suicide. A Life magazine profile highlighting the suffering in the camps eventually won that year's Pulitzer and was accompanied by a harrowing photo essay composed of photographs by Walker Evans. 
A shaken Harry Truman did the best he could to stabilize the situation. Three Army infantry divisions were posted to maintain a cordon around the evacuated Bay Area cities, more to discourage looting than out of any fears that the sea creatures might somehow move inland. Federal resources were poured into helping people in the refugee camps, but the fact was that three years of depression and conflict had left the federal government without as many resources as it had previously commanded. Dejected, Truman complained bitterly and at length to anyone within earshot that the election was a foregone conclusion. Between the San Francisco disaster and the loss of Hawaii, both of which he felt were unfairly blamed on him, he felt he simply had no chance. And events proved him right. On November 2, 1948, Thomas E. Dewey resoundingly defeated Harry Truman, an electoral bloodbath that found Truman carrying only four states. I'm sure you've seen the famous photograph, you know, it's kind of iconic from the era, of a grinning, exultant Dewey about to give his victory speech, holding up a newspaper announcing Dewey defeats Truman. Republicans rode Dewey's coattails to overwhelming majorities in both houses of Congress as well. A triumphant Dewey vowed to do his utmost to make the United States whole again to, quote, undo the damage that a lax administration has allowed to be inflicted upon us, end quote. Truman took the news with resignation. By some reports, he maybe even seemed relieved to have it all over. Publicly, he acknowledged that the people had spoken and said he would do everything in his power to make sure that he handed his successor the best possible situation in January of 1949. In San Francisco... The army had maintained its cordon, but lacking specific orders, made no attempt to move into the city. Air reconnaissance was attempted several times, but proved difficult. The aerial photographs taken of the bay were difficult to read. They showed that something was up in the tidal zones of the bay, but it was difficult to tell what. At the ONI special office in San Diego, Kay Hendry agitated for more information. Focused, as always, on the behavior of the creatures, she pointed out that capturing and holding territory like this was unprecedented behavior on their part. There had to be a reason, and it would be gravely irresponsible not to find out what that reason was. Over the course of a week, Admiral Spruance was convinced and ordered the 1st Marine Division to prepare a scouting mission to infiltrate the San Francisco exclusion area and determine exactly what was happening on the ground. On November 29, 1948, a Marine scouting team passed the San Francisco cordon and headed in for the waterfront. With them was Dr. Colin Hughes, a professor of marine biology from the University of California who had been seconded to ONI for the sea creature crisis. Hughes wrote at length about this reconnaissance expedition in his post-war memoir, The Beaches of Despair. Quote, we all remember that life in 1948 was surreal, just the everyday experience of opening the newspaper and reading about the country reeling under the assault of giant sea creatures that, as I well knew from my academic training, simply should not exist. But that baseline surreality was absolutely thrown aside when, at the request of the Office of Naval Intelligence, I met a small team of Marines at Stanford and drove with them up to the Army cordon at the edge of San Jose. The Marines were veterans, tough men, none with a rank lower than sergeant, all of whom had seen hard duty during the war. 
Several of these men had been at Guadalcanal and Tarawa, but they were clearly as shaken as I was to see the army cordon and to pass through it, driving our jeeps through deserted streets. At first, that was the strange thing, the total absence of people and the clear signs that everyone had left in a hurry. Lawnmowers sat in yards. Laundry still hung on lines. Windows and doors flapped open. That kept up for a mile or two, a very weird, silent mile or two, where the only real noise was the motor of our jeeps and some terse discussion of navigation between Captain Rollins, the expedition leader, and the marine driving the jeep. I didn't understand why they insisted on checking and rechecking every turn with a map. This was San Francisco, and it was hardly a mystery how to get to the waterfront. But these were thorough men. Things changed as we approached the port area. About two miles away, Captain Rollins ordered the jeeps stopped and signaled for us all to dismount. We're walking the rest of the way in, he said. I don't want them to hear the motors. Also, keep it quiet. No chatter. So we all got out of the jeeps, strapped on our rucks full of cameras and binoculars and scouting equipment, and proceeded on foot. And here things got even stranger and more distressing. As bad as the empty, evacuated neighborhoods had been, here we began to pass through parts of the city that had been damaged during the kelp man's rampage. Demolished buildings, crushed cars, unburied bodies, the sights were terrible. And terribly random. We'd pass by an unharmed block that looked ready for people to pop out of building doors, and then find the next block utterly laid waste with human limbs in advanced states of decomposition sticking out of piles of rubble. We walked down Mission towards the Embarcadero, one of the sergeants still checking the navigation every quarter mile or so in what I guess you'd call admirable thoroughness. And the closer we got to the bay, the worse the destruction got. I had to just set it all aside. I'd loved this city, and it tore at me to see it in ruins like this. But there was no time for that kind of feeling. Finally, we got to the point where we could see the docks. There was nothing left. The Embarcadero ran along piles of half-submerged rubble. The water in the bay itself was white-capped. It was a day with strong winds. But if you kept your eyes on the water for any length of time, you'd see heads bobbing out here and there, or tentacles, or tails, depending on what type of creature it was. It was clear that the water was absolutely teeming with them. Looking across the bay towards Oakland, I could make out a big pink mass that I realized with gut-dropping certainty must have been El Pulpo sticking out of shallow water. Captain Rollins wrote down a few observations and coordinates and signaled the two Marines with recon cameras to take some pictures. Then Rollins signaled that we were heading to the right, towards Hunter's Point. And as we moved that way, staying quiet and keeping the waterfront in view the whole time, things got worse. Just as I'd seen a big pink mass on the shore across the bay, as we came around a bend on this side, I could see something enormous and black sitting in the shallow water of a tidal zone. It was Blackjack Kraken, just sitting there, shuddering a couple of times a minute. The surface of the water around it was a little busier than usual with creature sign, and that held my attention until we reached a point maybe a quarter mile directly inland from where the big son of a bitch was sitting. Then Captain Rollins tapped my shoulder, handed me his binoculars, and pointed at the shallows of the tidal zone all around Blackjack. Rollins's binoculars had polarized lenses, which let me see under the surface of the water a little better than with my naked eyes. And what I saw made my stomach drop. 
I literally thought I was going to foul my pants. The seabed around him, or her, I guess it was clear now, so really it should have been Black Jill cracking all along. Anyway, the seabed was full of eggs. Huge eggs. Stretching up into the tidal zone and disappearing into the depths as the floor of the bay slid away. I tried to count them, but gave up almost immediately. There was no point. There were more than I could count. Thousands and thousands. There were so many the number didn't matter. And worse. As I looked, I could see that some of the egg casings were ruptured. They had hatched. In fact, as I stared through Rollins's binocs and fought with the part of my own brain that was screaming that none of this was possible, I literally saw one egg in shallow water jiggle a bit and then pop open as a small inky mass popped out of it. And then another. The eggs were hatching. I shook my head at Rollins. He nodded, and we both started recording observations as the photographers got the best pictures they could from a distance. Then we started the march back out of the city, each of us silently wondering what the hell we were going to do about this. End quote. Hughes and Rollins filed their report by radio as soon as they were clear of the exclusion zone cordon. Over the next two days, additional teams infiltrated Oakland and Alameda and the wilder areas at the south end of the bay near San Jose. These teams reported disturbingly similar findings. San Francisco Bay was full of eggs and fresh hatchlings and creatures tending to them. Colin Hughes, Kay Hendry, and Rich Trumbull were flown to Washington immediately to brief President Truman and the Joint Chiefs. Hughes relayed what he'd seen in the San Francisco expedition and the subsequent San Jose mission, which he'd also participated in. Hendry highlighted the fact that this was an unprecedented move by the creatures, and that if San Francisco Bay had been turned into a sort of breeding area for them, it could represent an inflection point in a Pacific situation that was already out of control. Trumbull added that, given the losses suffered in the Battle of San Francisco, the Navy already would have trouble mustering the appropriate resources to conduct any kind of operation, even defensive, against the creatures, and that if it was true that thousands of eggs were hatching or were about to hatch, by the time those creatures grew to adulthood, and one of the many, many uncertainties about the creatures' biology that lingered was the rate at which they matured, there was no conceivable way the Navy could do anything. A grave Truman listened to the briefing, asking a few terse questions of the ONI team and then of the Joint Chiefs. Secretary Forrestal confirmed Trumbull's assessment of the naval capacity situation. Truman nodded and dismissed everyone except General Hoyt Vandenberg of the Air Force. Eight hours later, 12 B-29 bombers took off from Castle Air Force Base in California's Central Valley. The planes flew north, pivoted, and approached the Bay Area from the southeast. The bombers flew in two plane elements, one armed, one observing. In each case, the armed plane carried a plutonium-based atomic bomb of the same type dropped on Nagasaki in 1945. At 4.42 p.m. local time, the element dispatched over Oakland dropped its bomb. At 4.46, the plane detailed to San Francisco dropped its. The plane ordered to San Jose encountered wind gusts that posed a potentially serious fallout problem 
and was ordered to orbit to the south briefly, mushroom clouds visible to the north, to wait for opportune conditions. The go signal was given at 5.03 p.m., and a third bomb was dropped into the bay just offshore from San Jose. The additional three bombs fell on other points in the bay identified as likely nest sites. All six bombs were set to detonate as airbursts at 1,500 feet to maximize the blast radius. Each operated flawlessly, exploding with the force of roughly 23,000 tons of TNT, instantly removing the waterfronts of the cities of San Francisco, Oakland, and San Jose from the face of the earth. Fires raged throughout the Bay Area exclusion zone. The infantry cordon, which had been moved back an additional 15 miles, marked the point at which any attempt at firefighting even started. It was 8.12 p.m. in Washington when word reached the White House that the bombs had been successfully dropped and detonated. An aide gave the report to Truman, who thanked him and dismissed him. Harry Truman then retreated to his room in the White House residence, sat in his favorite reading chair, and shot himself in the temple using a pistol of unknown provenance. On the table next to him were notes to his wife, Bess, and to Thomas Dewey. The contents of the note to his wife have never been made public. The note to Dewey wished him luck in rebuilding. Hearing the shot, Secret Service agents rushed into the room and found Truman already dead. And a uh, quick, maybe macabre aside here, but hey, it's Halloween. Um, where did Truman get the gun has come down as one of the great unanswered questions of the entire crisis, with no definitive answer. Investigative journalist Gary Kutsadis concluded in 1960 that a sympathetic member of the Secret Service probably gave it to him, although the Secret Service forcefully refuted that theory at the time, and it's never been confirmed. In 1985, the TV journalist Geraldo Rivera hosted a primetime special where he claimed he would present unambiguous evidence that Truman's wife, Bess, had given him the gun. However, Rivera's sources' stories failed to stand up to even the most basic scrutiny, and a humiliated Rivera was forced to retract the story. His career later recovered when he forged a new identity as an enabler of right-wing politicians. Anyway, within two hours of Truman's suicide, Speaker of the House Joseph W. Martin was sworn in as president for the remaining weeks of Truman's term. Remember, Truman himself had been elevated to president at FDR's death, and no new vice president had been confirmed, so by the terms of the Presidential Succession Act of 1947, the office went to the Speaker of the House. President Martin pledged to take no major action beyond supporting the transition to the Dewey presidency and promised to consult with President-elect Dewey if any crisis should arise before the inauguration. On December 4th, a team of P-38 Lightnings outfitted for low-level reconnaissance flew over the bay and confirmed there was nothing left of the massive egg-laying sites, and the surface of the bay itself seemed to be littered with dead organic matter, some of it quite sizable. ONI analysts examining the photos concluded with a high degree of confidence that El Polpo and the Kelp Man had been killed by the bombs, with the fate of the other primaries uncertain. They also concluded that the nesting zones had indeed largely been cauterized. The news was greeted with enthusiasm in both the naval leadership in San Diego and the national security apparatus in Washington, 
piercing the overwhelming gloom that had dominated both areas and indeed the entire country after the destruction of the Bay Area. Yes, it was terrible that several of California's leading cities had been destroyed. No one denied that. And yes, the fallout plume that had resulted from the detonations was much larger and more concerning than anyone had predicted. But at least two of the major menaces were indisputably dead, along with countless numbers of the lesser ones. After years of fruitless struggle, Harry Truman had, with his last act, finally showed the United States a way to break the stalemate and kill the creatures. And if the means at hand meant some collateral damage, well, that was just the nature of war, right? I mean, that was the thinking. The biggest proponent of this worldview in Washington was General Curtis LeMay of the newly formed United States Air Force. A true believer in incendiary strategic bombing during the war, LeMay was positively enthusiastic for atomic solutions to the creature crisis. In transition meetings with President-elect Dewey, LeMay advocated forcefully for round-the-clock coastal patrols by B-29s with armed atomic weapons aboard, authorized to drop on site. Within three months, we'll have these sons of bitches cleaned out from here to Hawaii, he promised. Then we can straighten that mess out and have the airbase we can use to clean out the rest of the Pacific. Dewey, not wishing to start his term in open conflict with his national security apparatus, demurred. Privately, he was horrified by LeMay's proposal, telling a confidant that the general wanted to turn the Pacific Ocean into a giant radioactive stew and blanket the West Coast with fallout. During the transition, Dewey did see some merit in other atomic approaches, ones more targeted than LeMay's airbursts. The Navy Bureau of Ordnance briefed him on their then-nascent Project Triton, a plan to develop small atomic weapons that could be mounted on destroyer-launched torpedoes. This allowed for more precision in targeting, the Navy argued, and underwater atomic detonations would produce less fallout. Dewey, though not fully committed, was intrigued and promised that when he assumed office in January of 1949, his first act would be to sign an executive order earmarking $200 million for the Navy to develop the Triton. Curtis LeMay was not pleased. And that is it for this episode. Thank you again, uh, as always, for listening. Please join me next week as we see how the leadership of Thomas Dewey affects things in the Pacific and the country as a whole. Uh, one other thing I did want to throw in here, um, as always, thank you again for sticking with it this far. You know, this is 13 episodes. Um, I have tried to lay off the, uh, you know, the hectoring about spreading the word. But I do want to take a second here to say, if you have the capacity to spread the word about the show, I would really, really appreciate it. Um, I love the audience that has developed for this. Um, and I just, I'd like to, you know, see it keep growing. I want to... Get the word out on this as far as possible. So, you know, anything you could do to spread the word would be most appreciated. But, you know, regardless of that, thanks most of all for downloading this and pressing play. Thanks and be well. Get out there and bust them crackings. Dee